Good evening and welcome to the fourth annual ARIS lecture. The ARIS lectures were established in 2015 to honour and celebrate the contributions made by Michael and Anthony Aris in the field of Tibetan and Himalayan studies. Michael, as many of you know, was one of the pioneers of Tibetan studies at Oxford and the first person to teach Tibetan language here. His twin brother, Anthony, is well known through his publishing house, Serindia, which has produced some of the most exquisite volumes on Tibetan culture and art. Sadly, neither of them is with us anymore, but we are profoundly grateful for the generosity of those who have helped us to endow an annual Eris lecture here at Wilson, so that we can have an occasion to celebrate and remember the work of both Eris brothers. The speakers at previous Eris lectures were Janet Gyatso from Harvard, Charles Rembel from Paris, Per Werner from Oslo, and this year, at the fourth Eris lecture, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Sam van Schaik from the British Library. Sam obtained a PhD in Tibetan Buddhist literature at the University of Manchester with a dissertation on the 18th century Buddhist master Jigme Lingpa and his works on the so-called Great Perfection System of Tibetan Buddhism. Since then, Sam has conducted research on Buddhism, Tibetan history, and the Silk Roads. He has been engaged in various research projects, most recently a large interdisciplinary project called Beyond Boundaries, Religion, Region, Language, and State, funded by the European Research Council. So this is a big and very prestigious award. Since 1999, Sam has been working at the British Library his official job title is Research Project Manager with a particular focus on Tibet, the Silk Roads and Buddhism. The title does not quite capture the intellectual adventures that go along with Sam's work. As project manager for the International Dunhuang Project, he has over many years been in charge of the large Central Asian manuscript collection in the British Library. He is overseeing the enormous task of digitizing early Tibetan texts and making them available online in conjunction with partners in other parts of the world who do the same. The aim is to bring the manuscripts which have been scattered across Asia and Europe together in a large virtual library that is accessible to all. The treasures of Dunhuang will thus be reunited at least in the virtual space of the internet. The significance of these ancient manuscript sources cannot be overrated. Dunhuang, the ancient oasis town where the northern and the southern Silk Roads met, was a vibrant multicultural environment with people who spoke different languages, followed different religions, and brought their respective cultural heritage to the region. The so-called library cave at Dunhuang, discovered in the early 20th century, has preserved a wealth of texts that mirror this cultural and linguistic diversity. Sam has been working on these incredible treasures from the past with a focus on Tibetan materials. He has unearthed early sources of Tibetan Buddhism, analyzed the paleographical features of manuscripts, and investigated their historical context. His research has been published in an impressive number of articles, and I believe eight books, or is it nine? 
I lost count. Do you, do you, can you remember? <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to lose count with your publications. Among his recent book, book publications are Tibetan Zen, Discovering a Lost Tradition, and Manuscripts and Travelers, the Sino-Tibetan Documents of a 10th Century Buddhist Pilgrim. Many people will also know um, Sam's book, Tibetan History, which has become a kind of classic in the field. These well-researched studies are accompanied by many intriguing and highly original observations that Sam has published on his blog, Early Tibet. If you have not seen it, I would very much recommend to visit this page. It contains entries on topics such as <coughs> a Turk far away from home, the Chinese under Tibetan rule, did the Buddha visit Khotan? Two frogs a thousand years apart, red herrings on a high plateau, and from the Taklamakan with love. <laughs> if you are intrigued, as I hope you are, you can simply Google early Tibet, and it should take you straight to Sam's website, and it's well worth visiting, so, so do have a look. Today, Sam van Schaik will give a lecture on magic, healing, and ethics in Tibetan Buddhism. As you may have seen in the invitation, he will introduce Tibetan books of spells that promise skills such as making someone fall in love or gaining powers of clairvoyance, invisibility, and finding hidden treasure. Useful as these abilities may be, not all of them can easily be reconciled with Buddhist norms and values. I look very much forward to learning today how the practice of magic relates to the framework of Tibetan Buddhism. I should mention at this point that the lecture will be recorded, there will be an audio recording, which will at some point appear on the Wilson website. So if you want to hear it again later, it will be available. And at some point there will also be a written version uh, that you find on the Wilson webpage, Aris Lectures. So I hand over to Sam van Schaik, please. Join me in making him very welcome. Thank you, Ulrika, for your very, very kind words. Uh, so kind, I feel like anything I do now will be a, a bit of a letdown, but uh, hopefully not. Uh, and thank you for the invitation to this uh, fourth Aris lecture, which um, I feel very privileged to be able to give. Um, and it's nice to see so many familiar faces here in the theatre. So I first met Michael Aris in 1997 while I was in the midst of my doctoral work on Jigame Lingpa and had recently moved to Oxford. Michael responded graciously to my awkward request for advice and help, meeting with me in his college rooms and replying to numerous emails. Uh, which I still have printed out and on file because that was the 90s and I uh, used to print out emails, as uh, some of us did. Uh, Michael also made a concerted effort to have the bodily in order and obscure Zogchen text at my request, giving me a glimpse into his work as an advocate of Tibetan studies uh, here in Oxford. And though I knew Anthony Aris less well, I met him several times as well here in Oxford and elsewhere, and he was always a warm and generous presence. When I came to Oxford, I was already familiar with Michael's work, especially his book on Jigme Lingpa's account of India in the 18th century and his study of the treasure revealer Pema Lingpa. Michael's approach, sympathetic yet critical, properly cautious but not afraid to explore 
new connections and interpretations, was also an inspiration to me. And I hope to reflect a little bit of that spirit in this evening's talk. So, this evening, I'm going to talk about magic. What is magic? Uh, most of us have some idea of what the word means, but it's notoriously difficult to define. In the study of religions, one of the most influential definitions came from James G. Fraser's The Golden Bough. In this book, Fraser described magic as the first primitive stage in mankind's attempt to understand and control the world. According to Fraser, magic evolved into religion, a more sophisticated system that relied on supernatural beings. Religion, in turn, was superseded by science. This distinction between magic and religion influenced later generations of anthropologists, um, actually in the same generation, Emile Durkheim, saw religion as a shared set of beliefs held by a social group. Magicians, on the other hand, were loan agents whose important relationships were with their clients. Thus, Durkheim famously said, there is no church of magic. And Sigmund Freud, of course, saw magic as a form of wish fulfillment in which the desire is projected onto the magical act itself. More recently, there's been a reaction against this discussion of magic with a tendency among anthropologists and historians of religion to recommend abandoning the word magic altogether. There's some merit in this argument. Our word magic comes from a very particular place, uh, and our distinction between religion and magic goes back to early Christianity, when criticising magic was part and parcel of the way early Christians defined themselves and disparaged their rivals. Any spell or amulet that was thought to embody a power other than that of God and his prophet was a threat to be characterised as the work of evil demons. The miracles of Jesus and the apostles had to be strongly differentiated from magic. So if the word magic comes with all this baggage, why use it? The fact is that magic continues to live as an important concept in specialist circles of esoteric practitioners and more widely in fiction and games. People do tend to know what it means. The concept of magic is still widely used by scholars as well, despite its rise and fall from grace in the 20th century. The study of ancient Babylonian magic, Jewish magic, Hellenistic magic, uh, and European magical practices of the Middle Ages are still very much alive and well today. Uh, and I was able to stop in at the Ashmolean's exhibition on magic ritual uh, and witchcraft earlier today and enjoyed that very much. They've also, uh, these studies on, on other magic traditions have also much to teach us about magic in the Buddhist world. So when I use the term Buddhist magic, I mean rituals entirely performed for this worldly ends in which the ultimate aim of Buddhism, awakening, is only indirectly present in the practice, if at all. When Buddhism bodhisattvas appear in these practices, their role as saviour or exemplar of enlightenment is not forefronted, and their purpose is only to guarantee the effects of the magic spell. I do not mean to revive phrases and Durkheim's idea that magic stands in opposition to religion, I think it's better to see magic as having a specific role in the wider context of Buddhist practice. Now, to turn swiftly from theory to practice, let's take a look at an actual Tibetan book of spells. The book which we're going to look at may be the earliest surviving compendium of Buddhist magic and was found among a cache of thousands of manuscripts that had been sealed in a cave shrine at the beginning of the 11th century. The shrine was part of a major Buddhist cave complex near the town of Dunhuang in western China. So Rika already mentioned uh, this is a collection which I work on at the British Library. The sealed cave was discovered by a Chinese monk in 1900 and subsequently visited by explorers from several colonial powers who examined the manuscript cache and sent selections from it back to their own countries. 
One of the largest selections of the cave was gathered by the Hungarian-British explorer Oral Stein and sent to London, where it now resides in the collections of the British Museum and British Library. The manuscripts include scrolls, loose-leaf books called poti, and stitched booklets, and they're written in a variety of languages, including Chinese, Tibetan, Sanskrit, and Cotonese. Most of them contain Buddhist texts, although there are also letters, contracts, shopping lists, and other everyday items. So there's a map that shows the um, position of Dunhuang. Uh, here you can see Dunhuang, Shaozhou, and the Mogao Caves at the point where the red lines showing the silk routes uh, diverge across the northern and southern routes across the Taklamakan Desert. Uh, and it's really a departure point from Chinese culture into the culture of the Tarim Basin. And you can also see very close, of course, to the Tibetan Plateau to the south. And this is a picture from Oral Stein himself, his plan of the walled up cave where he found this cache of manuscripts. The manuscripts found in the cave were arranged in bundles and may have been the personal collections of various Buddhist monks and nuns, <coughs> and perhaps some lay people. As to why the cave was sealed, several scholars have suggested the threat of imminent invasion by non-Buddhists, but this is perhaps an overly dramatic explanation. Since the cave was almost full when it was reopened, it may have been that it simply outlived its purpose. After it was sealed, the wall was painted over with a fresco, so the driving force behind sealing the manuscripts in the cave may have just been that a patron was paying for redecoration. So this is the context in which this early Buddhist book of spells came to light. It's one of several thousand Tibetan manuscripts from the cave, yet in some ways it's quite different from all the others. This manuscript, which has the British Library shelf marked IOL TibJ401, IOL referring to the India Office Library, is a codex formed of bifolios stitched along the middle with thread. When opened, the bifolios are oblong, 8 by 19 centimetres. This format continues in later Tibetan manuscripts, and we have examples of it for as late as the 19th century. The book is covered in small Tibetan cursive writing, which is legible, though not very neat. Occasionally, the writer has added a few notes to clarify obscure words or practices. The writing style helps us to date the manuscript a little more precisely, as it's not one of the styles used during the time that Dunhuang was occupied by the Tibetan Empire, between the late 8th and mid 9th centuries. Thus, we can date the book to between the late 9th and late 10th century, and the evident wear and tear and some repairs that were made to the book indicate that it had been used quite extensively before it was placed in the Dunhuang cave. So a best guess would be that it was being used in the early to mid 10th century. So there's a close-up showing how the pages were bound together with string. And while the manuscripts in Dunhuang came from as far afield as central China, southern Tibet, and even India, this book of spells was probably a local product. Microscopic analysis of the paper has shown that it was made from rags, a product of recycled textiles. This kind of paper was used in the area around Dunhuang and further west along the Silk Road, where other sources of pulp were scarce. Thus, we have in this book a product of the Buddhist culture of the Eastern Silk Road in the early 10th century, though many of the practices contained in it date from much earlier. The Dunhuang spellbook contains literally hundreds of spells for all kinds of purposes. 
Since it would be impossible to describe them all, I'll try to give you a selection from one subsection of the compendium. These are spells related to the practice of the wrathful female deity Brukuti, who's sometimes known as the consort of Avalokiteshvara. Brukuti was also the name of the Nepalese princess who's said to have come to the Tibetan court and married the Empress Song Sangampo in the 7th century. So, the summary of the spells themselves is uh, shown on screen, and I'll just read out how they're actually practiced to give you a sense of the nature of these uh, rituals. So the first one, the spell book says, to find the location of a precious treasure at the time at the peak of a mountain, place an incense burner on a piece of cotton cloth and burn Google, a kind of incense. Take one knife and show it to the four directions, then draw a sa on the ground in each of the four corners and set the boundary. Recite the mantra 1,108 times and throw seven times in each of the four directions. If you do this, the treasure gates will open by themselves and the treasure guardians will come and offer you whatever precious things you desire. Uh, there's an interesting uh, kind of prefiguring of the later Terma tradition in which um, scriptures and other holy objects were found uh, and given by the treasure guardians, but this is a kind of pre-Terma uh, treasure-seeking uh, spell. To cure an illness, secondly, first it's important to do the appropriate mudras and make the summoning gesture with the index finger and middle finger of the left hand. On your other palm, trace round and round while pressing down. Raise each of your other fingers and say the mantra. And the author, the person who wrote this has put a little note saying the mantra is Om Brokuti, 108 times. Then do the mudra seven times, touching the hand of the patient, and they will be cured. Now, if you want to stop a curse or an evil sigil, write the name of the sick person on a piece of paper, say the mantra, and they'll be cured. This is a very simple spell. Some of them are, are really concise. Um, to dry up a lake, beat an effigy of a naga, which is made from gold, silver, or iron, while saying the mantra a thousand and eight times, and throw it into the lake. The lake will dry up. <laughs> I haven't tried it. If you want to reverse a river, make it flow upstream, make an effigy of a duck, and throw it into the river, saying the mantra 108 times. The river will flow upstream. If you want it to flow downstream again, on a cairn made of clean stones, make an effigy of a raven. If you throw it into the river, it will flow downstream again. Um, and this reminded me, I saw recently a, a statement from Apuleius, I think, saying that uh, magic is the power to make rivers change their courses. So now, if a malevolent person appears and you want them to be struck by lightning or a meteor, make this mudra. Shall I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Draw into your palm the middle finger, ring finger, and little finger on your left hand and raise your forefinger. Cross your thumb and forefinger across the middle joint. Recite the mantra, then use the mudra to indicate where it will strike. Destruction will come quickly. <laughs> and I'll say this, uh, talk more about this kind of um, particularly... Uh, shall we say, um, particularly d disturbing for, for in a Buddhist context kind of uh, magical ritual uh, in a moment. Uh, to complete this uh, selection, though, in order not to be bitten by a dog, say the mantra seven times over a little meat or drink and offer it to the dog. The dog's <laughs> anger will be pacified and for the rest of the day it will not bite you. So <laughs> one, one does find in some of these spells that it's simply a very practical advice with a mantra thrown in. Uh, then to, to bring a, a shatru, now the Sanskrit word shatru is used here in the Tibetan, and the Tibetan 
A scribe has written a note saying it's a person who's unfriendly towards you. To bring a shatru under your power, write the person's family name on a piece of paper and tread it under your feet. Recite the mantra 108 times while trampling on it till it can no longer be seen. After a day, the shatru will be able, not be able to have any malevolent thoughts and will act kindly towards you. To break up to Priya, again using the Sanskrit word for lovers, tread both people's family names under the feet of the Vidyadara, or Vidyadara, the spell caster. If they do not separate, say the mantra 200 times and visualize the two of them breaking up. <laughs> if you do, <laughs> after a day they will no longer be lovers and will break up. <laughs> to reconcile two people who are unfriendly, do the same as in the previous ritual, visualizing the two people being reconciled. They will want to reconcile their Biavahara, and the note says this means quarrel. Finally, if you want to render another person unable to speak, write their name on a piece of paper. After saying the mantra, put it in the mouth. Uh, and that's because it's slightly unclear, the scribe's written note saying, your own mouth. <laughs> uh, they will not be able to talk. <laughs> now, there must have been a wide variety of books of spells like this produced in India, which have disappeared, along with most early palm leaf manuscripts. Among the manuscripts that have survived in Nepal, there are collections of spells on rainmaking and other themes, but these have hardly been investigated yet. In Tibet, the situation is better, with many more old manuscripts having survived, and the inscription of these into modern printed editions after the Tibetan diaspora at the end of the 1950s and beginning of the 60s. One of the earliest, most extensive and varied of these is a collection called the Bari Beobum, or the Grimoire of Bari. The odd term Beobum, literally calf's nipple, but uh, it's not really what it means, refers to books that contain collections of medical and magical practices. The Barry Beobum is named after its author, Barry Winchen Druck, from, uh, as you see on the screen, 1040 to 1111, also known as Barry Lotsawa, a title given to translators. Barry Lotsawa was one of the most important Tibetan translators of Sadhana's Vajrayana Buddhist practice texts, and late in his life he also became the second head of the Sakya school for eight years. Barry Lotsawa undertook two journeys from Tibet to Nepal and India to study and translate Buddhist rituals with local teachers. His best-known work is the Barigatsa, a collection of just under 100 tantric meditation texts, many of which focus on ordinary accomplishments, including healing, wealth generation, and love magic. The supreme accomplishment of enlightenment is also addressed by many of these practices, so the collection is on the borderline of my loose definition of a book of spells. But Baripa's other main collection, the Barry Beobum, falls squarely into the category of magical literature. The Barry Beobum is actually a collection, collection of collections, perhaps a posthumous compilation of all the spell books compiled by Barry Pa in his lifetime. The titles of the individual collections include Profound Advice for Doctors and Portable Instructions. The first of these collections, The Advice for Doctors, is at 38 folios long and begins with some verses explaining why this new medical text is needed. Apparently, poisoning is rife in these degenerate times and powerful remedies are required. Baripa begins by telling the reader how to collect a rare leaf known as the Chuktuk Pawo, or All Accomplishing Hero. He says it can be found in the Mern region, meaning modern Nepal and Bhutan, where it grows in pine forested hills, especially on rocky cliff sides. He says it can also be found in Tibet, where it grows on dry, thorny plains and has thinner leaves. Uh, and I found this picture in a modern Nepalese publication of the Ekavira leaf, uh, which is similar to the Tibetan name, and uh, also has thin leaves, as described by uh, Baripa. But these are very, this is very practical medical advice, as, uh, as you can tell. 
But about halfway through the advice for doctors, the rituals move away from healing and towards a variety of magical practices, sending, including sending somebody a bad dream, bringing down a hailstorm, rituals for bringing rain, including a black rain ritual that's presumably intended for aggressive purposes. The collection ends with rituals for travellers, including a ritual for protection while on the road, and Urgen Padmasambhava's ritual for destroying a migo, the wild creature also known as a yeti. The same mix of medical and protective rituals, weather control and aggressive magic is found in the portable instructions of Baripa, the name select suggesting that it was uh, compiled for travellers. It begins with instructions on capturing or binding enemies using a magic diagram called in Sanskrit Yantra Bandana. The Yantra is a magical drawing, usually symmetrical, used for a variety of magical purposes in India since the Vedic period. They've been used in Buddhism from the early periods and are found in most Buddhist cultures, including Thailand and Burma. When introduced into Tibet, the word yantra was translated as magic circle, trulko. The use of yantras has continued in Tibetan Buddhism through to the present day, and their popularity in Indian Hindu tradition seems to be unabated. As well as describing yantras and their use, the portable instructions contains examples of some yantra diagrams. Sometimes in the portable instructions, Barry tells the reader that he received the ritual from people who he names. They're usually Indian or Nepalese figures with names like Gotama Swami, Shyananata, Shiva Ratna, Manjushri Jnana, and Buddha Rakshita. The names of some of these informants suggest that they may not all have been Buddhists, or may have come to Buddhism from some other tradition, such as Shaivism. Bharipa probably studied with some of them on his travels, while he may have met others in Tibet. Bharipa tells us that one ritual for repelling hostile non-Buddhists was given to him by Marpa Lotsawa, an equally prominent teacher in the 11th century. Marpa received the ritual from Vairochanavajra, an Indian from Orissa who travelled to Tibet and from there on to China. Vairochanavajra is best known in Tibet for translating a major collection of the songs of realisation of Indian tantric masters, and in China he said to have made a success of himself through teaching life-extending practices. Anyway, the contents of the portable instructions are clearly aimed at the needs of travelling ritual specialists. We have a spell for swift feet using the flesh of a horse's eye and four crushed birds. Spells for travelling dangerous routes and avoiding robbers, a spell to be cast before entering a king's residence, and spells for dominating and overpowering people. Spells for services to others are here as well, including medical treatments and rainmaking rituals. Oh yes, that's a picture, another picture of a yantra from a uh, Nepalese manuscript. Mm. I'll come to that picture in a moment. The riot, variety of spells found in Dunhuang the Dunhuang Spellbook and the Bari Beobam are fairly representative of what we find in most Tibetan grimoires. The Buddhist ethic of liberation for all is invoked at various points in these collections. And on the worldly level, the multiple medical and protective spells offer at least a temporary surcease of suffering. Yet there's no avoiding the fact that the spells for killing enemies are also found here, and there's no hint that these enemies are metaphorical or spiritual. Stories of aggressive magic abound in the Tibetan tradition, especially from the time of Bari Lotsawa. Biographies of lamas from the 11th and 12th centuries feature magical contests, sometimes resulting in death. One of the most famous or infamous of these lamas is Ra Lotsava, who was born in 1012, another translator who also picked up magical rituals in Nepal and India and is said to have killed 13 rival teachers in this way. <laughs> but the most famous Tibetan user of uh, black magic must be Milarepa. As the story goes, Milarepa learned various aggressive magical practices and brought down a hailstorm in an act of revenge causing many deaths. Anguished by his crimes, he went to seek a teacher to purify him and came to Marpa Lotsawa. Again, a translator and a traveller. 
The story of Milarepa's redemption is well known. Marpa refused to give him teachings until he'd built a tower, but when Milarepa had completed the tower, Marpa told him to pull it down and start again. Only after Milarepa had given up hope entirely did Marpa agree to transmit the teachings to him. And of course, Milarepa in time became one of Tibet's best beloved saints. It's not always remembered that Marpa was not entirely against Milarepa's use of aggressive magic. In the most famous biography of Milarepa, the one by Sangyon Heruka, Marpa tells Milarepa to keep his book of spells away from the Buddhist shrine. But then Marpa instructs Milarepa to cast two aggressive spells. When Milarepa first requests teachings, Marpa instead tells him to bring down hailstorms on two regions where bandits are attacking disciples who are on their way to visit Marpa. When Milarepa successfully does this and brings down a terrible hailstorm, Marpa says, was it for these meagre bits of hail you cast that I brought back the Dharma from India with such difficulty? And Marpa demands another spell from Milarepa, this against some highlanders who've shown him contempt. This time Milarepa casts a spell that causes the highlanders to turn against one another, and as the biography says, many died at the point of a sword. It's only after this that Marpa allows Milarepa to move on to the next tower-building stage of his apprenticeship. What are we to think of this? It feels like Sangyon Heruka, the author of the biography, is challenging us, making us face up to our own preconceptions of right and wrong, and yet he doesn't offer us any solutions. I'd like to make a couple of points to put this quandary into a broader context. The Tibetan sources offer ample evidence for the use of aggressive magic by Buddhists, but it's important to understand that this was not an innovation of Tibetan Buddhism. We also have accounts of Buddhist monks practicing magic for warlords in China during the early centuries of Chinese Buddhism. Like the Tibetan biographies, these are not reliable historical sources as such, but do indicate a range of activities that were required and to some extent expected in successful Buddhist monks. Photu Dung, pictured here, um, whose dates are from the 3rd and 4th centuries, was a monk who travelled to China from the Silk Road city of Kucha and offered magical assistance to several warlords in return for their patronage. There are several descriptions of his magical practices in the biographies of eminent monks. For example, it said, Photu Dung sat down on a corded bench burnt Parthian incense, chanted an invocation of several hundred words. When he had done this for three days, water seeped out a few drops at a time. Well, this was what he was asked to, um, to bring water in a drought. There was a small dragon about five or six inches long, which came out with the water. In a little while, the water came in abundance and the dry moats were all filled. Uh, the Chinese dragon is, uh, of course, the, um, uh, the form which the naga takes in uh, the water serpent takes in, in China, in Chinese Buddhism. Photodong used his magical skills to help warlords whose violence was well known. One of them was described by Eric Zirka as a psychopath whose reign was one of unprecedented terror. Now, Photodong is also said to have converted thousands to Buddhism through his teaching and spells, but there is an ethical quandary here, similar to that posed by the story of Marpa and Milarepa. And again, the Buddhist monks who wrote these biographies did not try to resolve the quandary for us. It's also important for us to understand that magic is not specific to the Vajrayana or even the Mahayana. Several early Buddhist scriptures offer magical protection from supernatural beings such as ghosts, preta, and the nature spirits known as yakshas. This genre of protective ritual is known in the Theravada as parita and in Sanskrit sources as raksha, both words meaning protection. One of the earliest and most popular of the Buddhist magical texts, the Adhanatiya Sutta, provides a method for monks to ward off attacks from dangerous yakshas by invoking the aid of benevolent yakshas with a recitation. In the sutra, the protective recitation is provided by Vaishravana, a mythical king with an entourage of benevolent yakshas. The Atanatiya Sutra 
is in the Pali Canon and remains an important part of Theravada practice. Sanskrit manuscripts from Central Asia show that it was practiced in other early Buddhist sects too, and suggest that chanting these texts for magical protection predated the early schisms which gave rise to different sects. Some magical texts translated into Pali were not included in the canon, but this does not mean that they were not popular. For example, the Rishnisha Vijaya Dharani, a text for magical protection, which is very well known in Buddhist Mahayana cultures, also has a version widely circulated in Theravada cultures in Pali. As far back as we can go in the Buddhist manuscript record, we find magical literature. A magical text has even been identified among the birch bark scrolls from ancient Gandhara, the earliest surviving Buddhist manuscripts. In this text, the king of the Nagas provides the Buddhists with a mantra that will protect them from threats, including snakes, wild animals, and yakshas. The line between protection and aggression is not always clear either. Consider, for example, the Mahapratisara Vidyarajni, uh, another of these early texts, in which the monk is instructed to summon a variety of gods and spirits and chant, kill, kill all enemies, burn, burn all the wicked among the praetors, pishachas, dakidis, humans and non-humans, roast, roast the heart, crush the life, of all wicked grahas. The violence of the language is clear, and so is the presence of humans in the list of those to be roasted. Now, I need hardly say it, but the prime ethical injunction of Buddhism is to refrain from killing sentient beings. The ethical question raised by the presence of violence within Buddhism has been addressed many times in the tradition itself. The most influential scriptural source for this is the Upaya Kalasha Sutra. And here we find the story of a previous life of the Buddha in which he was a ship's captain. In this story, the captain is in the middle of a sea voyage when he's informed in a dream that there is a thief on the ship who's planning to kill and steal from all the other passengers. The captain considers how to resolve the problem, rejecting the option of telling the other passengers in case they decide to kill the thief and thus suffer the karmic consequences of killing themselves. On the other hand, not acting at all will result in the death of the thief's victims. So the captain decides to kill the thief himself and does so in the spirit of great compassion. And great compassion, incidentally, is also the captain's name. This story bears some resemblance to the, the so-called thought experiments of modern Western philosophy. Yet it's different from these in that it does not suggest that the reader or listener identify with the ship's captain. The captain himself is placed in a position of omniscience, knowing the karmic situation of everyone on the ship and the effect that their actions will have on their futures. This is exactly the kind of omniscience that on a larger scale is attributed to a Buddha. This is the wisdom that's said to be allied with compassion in Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, with clear-sightedness uh, of wisdom and selflessness of compassion as working as one in their enlightened activities. Thus, the story of the ship's captain establishes a consequentialist approach to ethics, undermining any belief in the essential truth of the ethical precepts of Buddhism. But at the same time, it reserves the breaking of these precepts for those with full knowledge of all consequences, that is, really only for Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So unless we assume that all Buddhist users of aggressive magic were enlightened, the presence of violent magic in Buddhist scriptures and biographies is still an unresolved tension. One way for us to think about it is to move out of the realm of doctrine and theory and into history. We know that Buddhist monks were often operating in difficult environments where their position was insecure, while the ideal of monastic seclusion placed them outside the threats and needs of lay life, their reliance on lay sponsorship placed them directly in the sights of lay people looking for solutions to their everyday problems. A wide variety of spells allowed monks to negotiate those needs. Furthermore, in situations where this, a simple journey could easily result in being robbed and killed, the prohibition on carrying weapons left monks exposed. We can see early magical scriptures like the Mahapratisara Vidyarajni 
playing a psychological role, giving a sense of being protected to those who place themselves in a position of near defenselessness. Even if survival meant using a ritual that threatened destruction on others, this again might be justified from a certain point of view. For us, one result of studying Buddhist magic, whether through texts or in contemporary practices, is to see that Buddhism exists in the world and that moral principles may be cherished and transgressed at the same time. This movement between moral principles, the transgression of these principles, and the confession and purification of that transgression is integral to Buddhist practice. From an early stage of monastic Buddhism, a communal confession ritual, the posada, was practiced every two weeks in all monasteries. This confession ritual remains at the center of modern monastic Buddhism in Tibet, China, and wherever Buddhist monastic code is maintained. Confession rituals for lay people, including kings, are also found in places like the Suvarna Prabhasa Sutra. And in Tantric Buddhism, the confession and purification ritual of meditating on the deity Vajrasattva is one of the key preliminaries to many Tantric empowerment and meditation practices. Oh, there was a uh, slide that I, relating to what I said earlier about magic uh, practices being present in, uh, in Burma and Thailand. And this relates to what I'm about to tell you. So I'd like to end this discussion with a story. The story is about Bari Lotzawa again, the compiler of the 11th century compendium of spells that I talked about earlier. The story is based, uh, is based on earlier lineage traditions, but told by Jamyang Chensi Wongpo in the 19th century. And it's about the uh, transmission of the lion-faced duck in the Simamukha and uh, how Bari brought that tradition from India to Tibet. So I'll now read you the story, translated from uh, the Tibetan. The great Lotsawa Baripa went to India in order to listen, study, and practice, and translate the sutras and tantras written in Indic languages. Afterward, he travelled to Nepal, where he received teachings from, trained and conversed with Chitewa, the Newa. During his stay in Nepal, Baripa engaged with a heretic teacher, Bhavyaraja, in dialogue and debate. Day after day, Bhavyaraja would defeat the Lotsawa and win the debate. Despondent, finally one evening, the Lotsawa invoked his gurus and yidams, especially Achala, and prayed to them for help. The next morning, the Lotsawa triumphed in the debate, with a heretic, Bhavya, experiencing a devastating loss. Bhavya became furious and warned Master Baripa, saying, You've slipped into a bad habit. Now I will cast spells on you. You'll either be left defeated and humiliated in no more than seven days, or you'll be forced by the power of my black magic to accept my teachings. Bari Lotsua was utterly frightened and rushed back to the great scholar Chitewa. In a trembling voice, Baripa recounted the debate with the heretic, saying, As soon as I won, Bhavya became engaged and told me that enraged, sorry, and told me that he's going to cast evil spells which will destroy me within seven days. And if this is not the case, then the spells will force me to accept his teaching. What should I do? Chitewa replied, Oh Lotsua, do not be afraid. It seems you would rather kill yourself than accept this heretic's doctrine. Now, I will have to send you to India to train in averting the dark arts of life-taking evil spells with the great guru, Vajrasana. Here, take from this box the powder of swift-footedness and rub it on your feet. So Bharipa rubbed the powder on his feet and he travelled to the Nepalese lowlands that very same morning. And then after merely half a day's travel, Bharipa arrived at the Vajra throne, that is, uh, Bodhgaya. Bharipa then met with the great guru, Vajrasana, and presented his letter of introduction from the learned Chitawa. He also offered one show of gold as a gift to Vajrasana and related the story of his debate with the heretic teacher in great detail. Vajrasana replied, 
Oh, Lord Salah, do not be afraid of the heretic teacher. I have a variety of pith instructions for protection and reversal. One in particular is exceptionally profound and acute. In order to retrieve it, first you must prepare an excellent torma of flesh and blood on the evening of the tenth day of the month. While offering it, one pointedly invoke and pray to the assembly of the three jewels and your gurus, yidams and dakinis. Then at dawn you will receive a prophecy from the dakinis. So the Lotsua prepared the Gana Chakra using four sang of gold and undertook the invocation. The gurus, yidams and dakinis paid heed and as a result granted him the following prophecy, proclaiming, O Lotsua, do not be afraid of the heretic. We will grant you protection. These are some early drawings of Bodhgaya, by the way. Uh, the one on the left there showing the tantric deities that were, were very well represented in the sculpture of Bodhgaya. Many of them now disappeared or you know, are in the museum collections. The principal dakini of the assembly was the esteemed wisdom dakini Shimamuka, the lion-faced dakini, who counseled him, saying, the supreme among all pith instructions lies hidden about two miles to the south of the Vajra throne. Search there for an iron boulder that looks like a dead yak. Beneath it, you'll find a black, black earth in the shape of a triangle. If you dig there, you'll find a small sealed chest covered by charcoal. Inside of this, there's a rhinoceros leather chest. Inside of this, there's a chest made of the Bodhi tree wood. This chest contains a silver chest. Within the silver chest, there's a precious chest of gold. Within the gold chest is a turquoise chest. Inside the turquoise chest is a lapis lazuli chest. <laughs> Within this is a ruby chest within which you will find the 14-syllable fear-subverting mantra, written with the heart-blood of all Dakinis. Once you've uncovered it, recite it every day 21 times, and you'll be protected from all evil spells. You will avert all that is harmful, pacify all adversities and obstacles, and all cities, and all that is favourable will come to you. If you recite it 21 times in the morning, and strong disturbing negative thoughts arise, recite it no more. With those words, Simamuka vanished without a trace, like a rainbow into thin air. And so the Lotso are left before the break of dawn, carrying with him a large red torma as an offering. Soon he reached the yak-shaped boulder. As instructed, he dug where he found triangular-shaped black earth, and first came forth the charcoal. Then, as the prophecy foretold, he took out all the chests, and so he revealed the life force mantra of all the Dakinis. In exchange for the treasure, the Lotso placed a precious golden text in the chest and then hid it again just as he'd found it. The Lotswa then recited the mantra day and night without interruption. One day at dusk, signs arose that the heretic had targeted, who had targeted the Lotswa with black magic, and all the worldly Dakinis and Dharmapalas sent by the heretic were unable to harm the Lotswa, so they became ashamed and left. Thus the Lotswa was able to avert the threat. Then the esteemed and foremost wisdom Dakini Sima Mukha appeared once again in the sky before the Lotswa and spoke, O Baripa, the heretic teacher above Yuraja has vomited blood and lives no more. Overjoyed, Bari Lotso returned to Guru Vajrasana and shared this news. Guru Vajrasana replied, In these degenerate times, fearful sentient beings employ their negative emotions to win arguments. I am one such master, he lamented, covering his head in disappointment. Moved, Bari Lotso prostrated many times before his guru and confessed, O oh, Guru, not only have I averted this evil out of fear, I have also engaged in spells that caused the death of my opponent, so now I must bear the fault of having taken the life of another. The great Vajrasana replied, it would have sufficed merely to wear the mantra I've spoken of on the body, but you've recited the mantra day and night without interruption. Thus you've accumulated the fault of killing. Now you must exert yourself in purifying this bad deed. Do not return to me until definite signs arise that it has been purified. For one whole year, the Lotsua exerted himself in purifying this evil, during which time he did not have a single opportunity to meet his guru, the great Vajrasana. 
the close disciples of Vajrasana, without any signs of pride, treated Bharipa with great kindness, bringing him food and drink whenever possible, along with anything else he needed, all without the Guru's knowing. And when signs finally arose that Bharipa had purified his evil deeds and his Guru's command had been accomplished and fulfilled, he was once again able to meet his Guru. From then onwards, Bharipa requested many teachings and became both learned and faithful. When he returned to Tibet, he benefited beings on a vast scale. Later still, he journeyed to the glorious Sakya Monastery and transmitted the pith instructions and related empowerments, sadhanas, and rituals to Sachem Kunga Ningpo. Well, that's the end of the story, although not the story of Bharilotsawa, who went on to great success as a teacher in Tibet, eventually becoming the head of the Sakya school. It's interesting to note that those who followed Bharipa on the Sakya throne included some of the most important teachers of ethics in Tibet, including Jetsun Drakpa Gyaltsen and Sakya Pandita. And Bharipa's transmission of the lion-faced Dakini was also transmitted in the Gelugpa school, thanks to Tsongkhapa, another great exponent of Buddhist ethics. I'm not saying there's hypocrisy here. In fact, I'm saying quite the opposite. I think that aggressive magic and other transgressive behavior can actually be a driving impetus to formulating clear ethical positions. It's not an issue to bring us to a comfortable conclusion, but I think it's good to feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes. And it's also good to recognize that the same discomfort about magical practices is expressed in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition itself. Magic, especially aggressive magic, is not always pleasant to think about, especially when it's being used by Buddhist teachers. But, as we've seen, the Tibetan tradition itself has not shied away from confronting good, the bad, and the ugly in its own history. And this is something that we could probably learn about ourselves as we continue to study and practice Tibetan Buddhism here in the West. Thank you. for these fascinating insights into ancient Tibetan magic from Tibet to China to South Asia and introducing us to the, the difficult ethical questions and leaving them open so that we can all ponder. <laughs> um, I, I th yeah, it's, there is no easy solution to that, is it? Uh, not that we're going to come up to this evening, I think. Okay, <laughs> next time. <laughs> Maybe, <yes>. I'm sure <laughs> we can all go home and practice tomorrow and see whether we can find treasure or... Um, <laughs> so the Greek spells particularly were <laughs> can be applied, although it makes yes. me wonder whether anyone ever tried to reverse the river. I wonder. Uh, one of the questions that was raised by an uh, author of a book on Jewish magic was uh, how these... Uh, magicians or practitioners of these spells continue to ply their trade when some of them, one can hardly imagine they were ever successful in their, uh, in their attempts to, to do what they did. But um, as he pointed out, there are plenty of people in our society, including lawyers and software engineers, that make promises that they, they don't fulfill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Sir. Thank you.